Hi, this is Jess Van Ostrand. Musician Adrian Michna went from being a student of classical music to becoming an established electronic musician and DJ. He happens to be a neighbor of mine, so I recently invited him to my house to chat about his early experiments with sound and what makes a great song. Thanks for listening. first, Adrian, about how you got to be where you are, and maybe it seems a little backwards to skip ahead, but one of the things I really like about your story is that you started in a totally different genre of music, Mm -hmm. and so tell us how you were brought up to be a classical musician, if that's the right way of phrasing it, and then then what happened to you? (laughs) Right. Um, Well, I started playing violin in second grade or third grade, and then I switched to, I always had my eye on the trombone. I think maybe I thought it was, as a, as a kid, I thought it was a powerful instrument. Um, you know, it was bigger than me. So I, and, and the tuba was too big, it was impractical. So the trombone seemed like the right balance, you know. And, and trumpet was too common, and, you know, clarinet was too common. You really thought about this. Yeah. Like, you put a lot of thought into this as a second or third grader. Yeah. W- was there something, somebody that you saw who played the trombone that represented something cool mm-hmm. to you, or was it the instrument itself? I think it was just the instrument. I kind of knew the sound of it. I knew, I think it was more a process, process of elimination. I knew I didn't want to play trumpet, you know, because mm. and, and, it was so, like, kind of common, and, anno- and it's very high pitch and loud. And I saw the trombone as more of a robust, you know... You like the sound of it. Golden That's, instrument. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But that's really hard to play because you have to have really strong, like, diaphragm muscles sure. for pulling it. How do you do that in third grade? Um, I think, you, I, yeah, you can, you just pull it off. You just, that's I cool. mean, they teach you posture, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and it's cool, like, all of those, I still have to remind myself to, like, breathe, you know, but I'm sure most people do. Um, but all of those breathing things become such a, a part of, of playing a brass instrument. And you continued with the trombone. So I just continued with tr- trombone, and I just, it was fun, and I was definitely, there was a, a lot of factors. We were lucky that we had a great music program in our school. This was in Westchester, in upstate New York, or I call it, you know, suburban New York. And really lucky that we had, all the teachers were just, you know, super, really made you want to play your instrument. And I think that's kind of the make it or break it. Um, and then you're surrounded by other kids who are excited to play, you know, like, Blue Rock was, like, the the fourth grade anthem, you know. What's Blue Rock? It's, it's, a, it's a blues rock song designed for fourth graders. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God, I totally missed that. Okay. Okay, well, we'll have to play it so people know yeah, what we're talking I'm sure about. It's That's on cool. You, I'm sure it's on YouTube. So, um, that sounds incredible. Okay, so you were in this environment with all these kids who were music enthusiasts also like you. Right. Um, and and then you realize, you know, and then even within like one or two years, you realize like, oh, there's this thing called band nerds, you know, and I'm like, and you realize you're surrounded by like band nerds. But what was interesting was at the time, all of my interests outside of school, such as like skateboarding and BMX, those things were really starting to get intense, you know, like fifth and sixth and seventh grade. Um, and so, and of course, those are super, you know, anti-establishment, you know, like, we don't associate with band nerds. So I was thinking maybe that was, like, the, one of the first turning points where, 
you have this, you know, it's your Clark Kent moment where in school you're a nerd and then outside you're like, you've got your baggy pants on and you're like, oh, You were cool. Basically is what you're saying. You were (laughs) uncool and then cool. If we were to break it down. You you leave school, you go in through a phone booth and you come out and you've got, you know, a Pau Peralta shirt on. (laughs) So you felt like you were leading a double social life. Well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, but in, it's funny because like also the band nerds wouldn't really get it, you know. Like I, you could sh- you could show up to to band practice with your skateboard and they they just be like, like it it wouldn't even phase them. They just be like, oh yeah, let's come on, let's play music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more importantly was that led to like bad things like graffiti and like so. Luckily, I did get into. I think being in New York, I I got into graffiti in like seventh grade, and um, and that just leads to like trespassing and stealing and you know everything that bad that you should do when you're in like eighth grade and stuff and uh and I think when I saw all of that um how how it was just all it was doing was getting me in trouble was I realized like I should stick I should stick to music um, mm. so and you just had that instinct, like you figured that out on your own, or did yeah. you get in trouble and have to be told? Oh no, I can't, I got in all the trouble you could get into, like <laughs> you know. As uh, but I, again, I feel lucky. Like if you're gonna get in trouble, do it before you're 18. You know, because mm. like you get it's a slap on the wrist, or it's like there's yeah. You get lots of second and third chances. Yeah, you're less likely to like. I mean, when you're an adult, you're not gonna go in to a, a Home Depot and try to steal Krylon like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think, yeah, that was, that was interesting. And then there was a bunch of, um, friends, they were very, very key and they were outside of the, um, I guess you call them outside of the classroom. And, um, they, one of them had a Casio SK-1, which was the first, um, it was an early, um, little toy keyboard, mm. but the thing about it was you could sample your voice. So, of course, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to go meow, and then play, like, a meow, meow, meow song. And so, if then... then Obviously, then everybody's started. first thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then we stepped it up, and we were like, oh, well, let's squeeze, the, let's take our friend's cat and squeeze it so it meows. And then we were trying to, you know, you're just, you're going to, to extremes to try to sample any, anything you can think of. I need to just let that sink in for a minute, because that... I was with you on the meow meow voice part, and then you went to squeezing a real cat <laughs> a real to get cat. a meow. A real one. And that's when I feel like you went somewhere different from the average kid. <laughs> well, you're just, re- you want to get real sounds, you know, and you're really, or you're saying, oh, can we get like the sound of a, a, a tire screeching, you know, or. That's yeah. so interesting. Okay, so these are like early seeds of yeah. making experimental music and sound. Yeah, and so that, the Casio SK-1, I'm sure a lot of people have, have you know, have used, I know for a lot of musicians, it was, um, it was, a, it was a, a staple instrument that was very accessible. Um, yeah, it just makes your outlook, you realize, oh, I can sample, I can sample myself coughing and then play it an octave down pitch it down and now it sounds like a, a wolf, you know, wolfing. And um, that's what wolves do, right? <laughs> I think it's howling. <laughs> yes, growling. Something like Sound that. Sound like a growl. So um, this is so interesting because in this story now we're in eighth grade, right? And mm-hmm. you're, you're sort of moving between two very different social spheres and you're figuring, you're, you're clearly finding your way like most kids at this time. Mm-hmm. So then, um, so then what happened with these two different worlds you were in? Um, they just kept, they kept going. 
But I think what happened, which was great, was that the world of music outside of school really developed. And this developed primarily through three friends. Um, say one of them was into like industrial, like Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, uh, Skinny Puppy. And then one of them was into ambient music, which is like unheard, who, who, you know, what eighth grader is into like ambient music. Mm. Um, and then the third person, Matt, um, who I ended up, you know, doing all of my, a lot of my music collaborations with, Matt was just, he was the type of, of kid as, a, as an eighth grader, he could sit with an acoustic guitar and write a song and go, this is the verse, this is the chorus, this is the bridge, this is the outro. Oh, we're going to need an, an intro. And like, as a eighth grader, that blew my mind. I was like, who taught, I go, who taught you how to do this? He goes, he goes, you know, and he just, and he was strong. <laughs> like, no, he had no answer. That's incredible. So the yeah. four of you found each other yeah. from this young age and you all had slightly different talents, it mm -hmm. sounds like. Yeah, and, we, cool. and then a real event was when Matt, the guitar player, he came to me and he said, hey, I have, um, my band has like three songs, we want to record them. Can, we, can you help us get into the band room in school? And we'll, re we'll, like, you guys are the only way we can record it. You were the uh, dude with the keys. I, was, I essentially was the guy with the keys and I became producer, engineer. And, you know, I was like, you name it, best boy. And um, so, we, so we were like, okay, let's do this. You know, let's, let's put the drums over here. Let's try to separate them from the singer over here. And we were setting up pillows and, like, pulling couches and, you know, trying to do some sound isolation. I have to insert a question. Yeah. Was this with or without school permission? Um, I think it was, it was sort of, it, it was with school permission. So they were supportive that you guys we, needed well, to use we, the room? We just told the teacher, we, we, our band teacher, we were like, hey, we just want to record um, some songs after school. Can we do it? And he was like, yeah, go ahead. That's so yeah. cool. You had that support. Yeah, I think he, and I think, but I think he was kind of like, well, don't like tell everyone that you're doing it. <laughs> that's, that, that's what <laughs> right. There's one caveat. I don't want to be asked this every day. <laughs> yeah. So we, I mean, that was really our entry into recording, um, you know, and just the whole idea of it, you know, I was like, well, so you guys rehearse these songs, you know, you've been rehearsing these songs for months and I didn't even know. And now I'm hearing them, you know, and we're recording them. And then within, um, within a couple of months moving forward, they were like, hey, do you want to play? We need horns in our band. You you should play trombone in our band, and that's how it all. That was it. It was like how it all started, and that um, the only reason I was asked to play trombone in the band, which at the time was pretty. The band was pretty like punk, um, was because of there's a band called the Makeup. Um, head, head at that time it was headed by Ian Savonius, and um, he played trumpet in the band called the Makeup. And they had some records on Discord Records. So really, Fugazi, what, Fugazi in DC, they were like the gateway drug, um, opening the, the world of like Discord Records. Mm. Um, and that was like a major early influence for us. And, um, and he was like, you don't even have to play well. Just play, you know, play like some bat 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 bat, like make it hype. <laughs> yeah. Wow, so does this recording still exist? <clears throat> I have mm, that one, not... Not the super first one, but from then on, we recorded like an EP every year, you know, not uh, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. And yeah, we have... How did you distribute it to people? Who was, we, who was getting it? We would do it, this was like in 1992 and 93, um, we would press the tapes through disc makers. 
and um, so we re- what does that record, mean? Um, there's a com- well, we record to four track, and then ourselves, and we would um, a lot of times we would buy these mics from Radio Shack, record, and then return the mics. I've heard about that trick. <laughs> yeah, you did not invent that idea, I don't yeah. think. No, no, not at all. And that's a classic one. The mics were like 80 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's like, what, what ninth grader has 80 bucks on them? You know, no one. So um, that was a fun one. And the mics were great. They were the PZM mics. They were like these flat wall mics. And um, you, get, you put one on one side of the room and one on the other side of the room. And then once we had our finished four-track tape, we would... Um, send it to a company called Disc Makers, which was very popular at the time. I think they were kind of like the, you know, they were like the, um, the big, I see. The okay. big company. And, you, you know, you could press, you could, we would press like 100 cassettes. Um, so you'd and, pay them, they'd make mm-hmm. like cassettes, like yeah. old-timey cassettes, yeah. <laughs> and then send that them back to you. I mean, I don't even, people weren't even really doing that, like no, pressing, no. CD, not yet. pressing CDs yet. I mean, not like, not like demo, you know, teenagers. Um, so as teenagers, it was, it was really your only choice. Um, then those tapes we would distribute obviously to, to, you know, hi mom, you know, to your, to your, uh, friends. Um, and then we realized, oh, we can send them. We would go to, um, to the back of the village voice and there was a listing for like Brownies cafe and like the lion's den, all of like the dive bars. And it, it it would say, you know, for bookings, contact, call. And then they would say, yeah, you have to send your tape tape in. So that was, um, to, to get real gigs, we had to, like, send our tape. Did you get real gigs? We, eventually, yeah, eventually. But you were underage. Yeah. Did that come up with any of these bars? Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, they would always, it, would, it was always a joke. They were just like, hey, kids, you know, you can play, but none of you are, you can't drink. You, know? you got to, like, come in they, through the back door <laughs> and play and get out. Yeah. Yeah, um, and they would always, and like, I mean, we eventually moved, it was funny, because we eventually accidentally moved into disco, and like, and so a lot of times we would be playing like these disco jams, and um, at, at dive bars, and you'd have like some old lady, who was probably only like 29 at the time. Seriously? <laughs> you know? And the old lady would be <laughs> dancing on the bar, and they'd be like, hey, these kids got old ladies dancing on the bar. How do you accidentally play disco? That seems like something we, you really have to try to do. Well, we we sort of um, we I think we didn't we didn't no one really studied disco. I think it's just such an easy genre to play. Mm. I mean, it's just it's just and were people like liking it, and then you kind of yeah. would work it in more to we your kinda, shows. Yeah, yeah. it was an easy way to at the end of our songs. So our songs would be really um, they got really intricate, and they would go from like you know rock to funk to ska we'd have like a little section that was like a ska section and then you could turn that i mean a lot of i think a lot of bands at that time also could trans transition from ska to dis to funk to disco pretty easily because you're just i mean it's just it, our drummer was amazing so it is also up to mm. like the drummer to know those um genres and just be like disco beat ska beat you know and that was like i think as a teenager you get a kick out of like learning those you know. Have you had any high school reunions? Yeah. Have you been to them? Yeah, they're the worst. Do you think that people turn out the way you expect and that the way people are in high school doesn't differ that much from what they are like 15 years later? Oh, yeah. everyone. A lot of people stay what you, what you thought. Well, I think what the problem with me was I expected more from 
from a lot of people I grew up with, I thought, oh, they're going to, you know, get out of the suburbs and they're going to move to the city and they're probably, you know, like Mr. Wall Street or they're probably like running a startup. And then you meet them and they're just like, no, I'm just... It's interesting because... Not being a townie, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems to me that um, you, your group of friends, are really on a path as young as high school Mm -hmm. and that I wonder, it just seems to me that you really can tell what somebody cares a lot about and that your interest and your dedication to something can take you so far and it can take Mm -hmm. you so much further than just um, having a God-given talent or sort of working but hard but not really. And your group seems like a really good example of something you guys found on your own that you really cared about that no one was instructing you to do and it wasn't built into your academic setting or the system that you were in Mm -hmm. and you still sort of broke through and did it anyway yeah and it's it's interesting and i have a seven-year-old daughter and i'm like amazed by what she can make and I feel like I can already, you already see these individual patterns of people and like what they really care about. So it's incredible to me how much you guys accomplished by such a young age. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But then, so um, you went to college for music, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I, I will say it was interesting that everyone in the band, you know, throughout high school, the band did uh, expand to like eight people. And what's interesting is that everyone, not everyone went on to go say do music professionally but everyone did go on to like really pursue like their niche and really I would say the drive you know for a lot of them was still there so that was that's kind of nice so when I got to college a lot of us um I mean I'd say a co- I would say half the band did uh, go to uh, applied to college a lot of them went to SUNY Purchase um which is a, a great school and then I just wanted to get out of state. So I went to, um, I applied to like University of Michigan and University of Miami and I ended up getting a scholarship to Miami. And I think that when I got down there, the greatest thing was finding, you know, other kids who were into, um, say like electronic music and stuff who, um, and it was like, wow, I'm meeting kids who live 2000 miles away, you know, and they they were into the same stuff I was into growing up. Hmm. And that really took, so the split between like the academic world of University of Miami um, and the street world of like South Beach and like club life, that was definitely like another, you know, more, more another Clark Kent double life, which, so did, I, which I loved. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's such a great combination of skills. How did playing the trombone and studying it seriously help with your electronic music? I mean, sometimes it didn't help because you're thinking like too, you know, you're thinking like too uh, academically. Um, so you really have to, and then the, obviously the, the ways it did help was because you can, you can sit as, at a synthesizer and like you can, you, uh, um, you can know, like you can talk about musical notation and sometimes you would find yourself like in a room talking musical notation, like, hey, let's jump down two octaves, and someone might not know what you're, you're talking about, because a lot of people I grew up with were, a lot, a lot of electronic music is totally self-taught, mm-hmm. just like, get the stuff and figure it out, press buttons. So if you're self-taught, what language do you use when you're just, working together? Um, you kind of, you use your mouth. 
<laughs> you demonstrate. You demonstrate. You, you know, you just you just keep pressing buttons and until you know, and then like it's. I think when you're sitting in front of speakers, you're just constantly like hitting the space bar. You know, it's like repeat, repeat, or you're using a drum machine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, you can you obviously like basic things like tune it down or or pitch it up or make it faster or slower. Like that's enough to. Um, but I think the obviously the great thing about electronic music is you'll have you had all these people who were saying, oh, well, yeah, I'm, they, um, my friends who never went to music school, they were showing me things that just blew my mind, you know, like they were talking about, um, you know, saying, hey, you can take this snare and truncate it, and then you can do a, a 96 note roll with it, so it sounds like a rattlesnake, so it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I can't do a rattlesnake sound, but you can turn sounds into rattlesnake sounds, you know, it's like, things like, that's just one example. That's really cool. So you yeah. were meeting all these people who were bringing all different kinds of experiences and experiments mm-hmm. from yeah. what they tried to do. Yeah. Had they squeezed anybody's cat to record yeah. the sound? Yeah. See, oh, you okay. found your people. Yeah. You found your people. Um, so, I mean, what do you? So, what makes what makes a good song? Um, I think, for me personally, like it, it, when the song gets stuck in your head, you know it's good. You know. Um, Always. Always, when something gets stuck. Well, in your I, I mean, if you're talking like in terms of a a pop, you know, in terms of like a song, song, like like a song that's written that has um, some sort of, to me, some sort of like catchiness or pop value. Um, and then, of course, there's other avenues. I mean, what makes like, for example, like a Philip Glass song is not catchy or not super, not catchy in the way that Nirvana is, but um, I mean, they're, they're apples and oranges. Is Philip Glass <laughs> an inspiration to you? Sure, yeah. And why yeah. is that? Because it was so, like, mathematical. I mean, you, you can sit, when you're sitting listening to, you know, Philip Glass, you feel smarter. So, aside from the obvious that in recent years, equipment's gotten a lot smaller, what other changes in technology have impacted your work? Um, so, for... At least for, um, you know, for obviously, so the laptop obviously is totally like been, been a game changer because you, you can record anywhere. Um, but one, I was thinking about this last night, a huge change was you can now, when, that I DJ with the laptop, and, and I was just thinking how, you know, we used to carry crates and crates of records out to the club, and I was just thinking, even if, even, you know, 10 years ago, if when I would carry a bunch of crates out, um, I still didn't have this what I still didn't have this like wide selection of music, and also ten years ago I knew way less about music. Hmm. So I was thinking how terrible of a DJ I must have been, you, you know, <laughs> ten years ago. That's what I was thinking. But everybody was working with the same limitations. Everyone had the same limitations, right? So you you really had to, you know, I mean, the really the good DJs like the at that time the incredible ones would bring like ten crates, you know, and they were just like zooming through records. I mean, it depends what kind of party it is, but like there was, you know, like DJ AM or like some of the, some of the hip hop guys who do like Hot 97, they'll bring like 10 crates and just like, you know, zoom through records. They also know where everything is. Well, and then there's that. Yeah. You have to really do your homework and, and, you know, even like when DJ Shadow, when he was touring with Vinyl, like, he was like, if one record's out of place, you know, you've got to... That intern gets fired. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's also, the technology is not just about um, like convenience, it's also about access to information and like well, sounds and other resources. I think, it's, I think it's knowing how to organize your, your information because now mm -hmm. you, everyone has, you know, the playing field is even, so everyone has access to, to un, you know, it's unlimited. So I do think um, those old ways of knowing how to organize, even if you, you know, even like when you organize um, on with pen and paper, you know, um, and then applying that to like, oh, I have a folder in my iTunes. Now, how do I, you know, should I organize these by BPM or should I organize them by just by style? Like ACDC can mix with the Beastie Boys. You so you're, you are like your own librarian. Sure. You're like archiving all of this information that you have to be able to access really quickly. Yeah. So then what happened to the trombone? When um, did you say goodbye to the trombone? <laughs> the trombone, when I graduated college, well, I, real, well, I mean, as soon as I hit college, I realized like no one's making a living playing trombone. I mean, unless you're really, really good. And if I was really good, I wouldn't be at University of Miami. I would be, you know, trying to do Juilliard or something. Um, and all I would, you know, I would want to play, I would have my eyes on symphonies and stuff like that. But what I, um, what was cool was in college, we were, in college we actually, that was the first time we got a real record deal. And um, when we got the record deal, it was, it was just a trio and everyone in the, everyone in the group played an instrument. So there was like guitar and horns and, um, but for the most part, we were recording electronically. And um, we just, we were like, people, they liked that our, our, we were like down tempo, trip hop, you know, kind of doing kind of like, again, like what Bjork and like DJ Shadow and Tricky and like um, even early, some Aphex Twin um, stuff, all of that world of like instrumental electronic stuff. And people liked that it had horns in it. So we kept, um, so I decided to kind of just keep doing the horns. Oh, so it was kind of a, a plus that you had yeah. this unusual instrument in your group. Yeah, yeah. And we saw it, we saw it as, we, we sort of saw it as like, oh, well, what other groups have, you know, are using horns? Um, and then what's interesting is years later, fast forward to say 2007, um, when I got signed to Ghostly International, um, one of the, um, the, the CEO of the labels, uh, he, who was the A&R, Stan uh, Valenti, he was like, you should continue, you know, using, in, uh, implementing the horn, because it, it's, it's your, it's you, you know. Wow. So that was such, that was such a, you know, really motivating uh, statement from him. That's incredible. Yeah. So I saw someone the other day wearing a t-shirt that said, real hip-hop isn't on the radio. What is your take about popular music, mainstream music, top 40 music, whatever you want to call it? In your genre of electronic music, is there a divide between this is the popular, successful version, and here's the real stuff of substance that's not on the radio? Is there like an us and them situation? Uh, well, there's so much music now and it's actually a good time because you do have like underground producers that I grew up with who are now making songs that because they were, they're such good producers say let's take Skrillex and Diplo for example they're just such good producers that their stuff does get up end up on the radio and that 
their managers are like, no, you do need to be writing for Justin Bieber. So it's 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 a case even like when you have um you know it's like like when Steve Albini was doing um, producing like these like these bands he didn't he wasn't trying to produce them for the radio or produce them for MTV but it was just that he made so, so many great records. Who is he? What is he, he known for? He recorded uh, Nirvana. Okay. And um, so yeah, they were, of course like Nirvana is kind of I think that is a great example in the fact that they were writing songs and they weren't they didn't say we were, were writing these for MTV. To, to play them, you know, every two seconds. They said, we just want to write, like, the most punk, you know, ear-blasting, like, records that you can mosh to. And then it just was that turn. Um, so there's always, so there's always, there's always the aspect of, the, like, a true um, breakout success that becomes mainstream. And then, obviously, the downfall of that is that there's going to be, then they've set a... Um, shell and then everyone there's going to be like a zillion you know uh, people trying to imitate that I think it's um, really interesting just the question of popular taste versus what the machine behind it is creating I'm I, I appreciate your positive outlook that there is room for more than yeah. one kind of thing well, and the that machine's it's not... always one step behind and it's the it's the popular it's the pop I'm um, sorry it's the the talent and like the people who cut through sometimes accidentally and invent a new genre. You know, all of a sudden they've invented like dubstep, you know. And it wasn't it was because they were listening to drum and bass or they were listening to like really dirty um, bass music. And then say dubstep was accidental sort of came about and then all of a sudden the machine comes and they have to tag it. You know, the uh, machine could even just be an online store like Beatport. Which is like a major. It's like a major um, online store where DJs go to buy uh, MP3s, and so mm -hmm. they have to categorize everything. This is house. This is techno. And now all of a sudden, what are these songs that are selling like in the millions? Well, that has. We need to open a, a dubstep section of our mm -hmm. store. Um, and so you know, and because there's going to be ten-year-olds who are, are going to, you know, they need to know where to go on our site. You know. Right, it comes back to sort of the marketing and the, the consumer side of it. Yeah. Um, where have been some of your favorite places to play? Um, probably like the, the, the places that sound super exotic, um, like Budapest or Shanghai or um, Brazil or um, uh, Moscow, you know. And why? Just, I mean, um, is it because they meet your expectations of... No, I mean, like, there. Moscow was, like, you know, there was, like, eight people there. But, like, no, it was, like, some of them, sure, you, you know, I mean, in the same that some, sometimes you do a gig in New York and there's eight people there. Um, it happens, you know. Um, no, but, but you're, but the fact that you're so, you're so far outside of your um, comfort zone, you know, and you really, like, you're pinching yourself. You're like, oh, am I really, you know, playing in Moscow? Well, it's like, um, so, and also, also the psychology of, you know, nowadays, uh, like, 90, 95% when I play, I'm, I'm more of doing kind of a DJ set. So it is very, um, there's a lot of psychology involved. You're like, well, what do these people know? You know, what are they expecting? What do they like to dance to? 
And then there was a lot of interesting things, like when I played in China, I, I played some 80s songs, and, they said, and my friend came up to me and he said, they don't know any of these songs. They didn't have them, they didn't get right. them. They're like, he was like, they know Beyonce, you know, that's like their Madonna. And, um, and so that totally, like, then you're like back to the drawing board, and you mm. just like canned all your, you know, a song that you thought was cool, like an, like an 80s electro song from L.A., like you, you won't even play that. You just so you have to rethink like, on the fly what you're playing. Rethink, yeah, and, and move, and like all of a sudden, um, just think post two thousand three. <laughs> There's no sense of nostalgia for no. American oh, music over there. No, there is not. <laughs> so I know that you have a little experience teaching teaching workshops. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the most important thing to impart on somebody who's new to music? somebody who's maybe young, is really interested in going outside of the academic setting for music. How do you, you had some, sounds like like a great upbringing musically, but you also were encouraged to experiment outside of school. What what do you think people need to know? What, what are some important well, lessons? Um, number one was like your, your friends, you know, who you're surrounded by. And like, I was thinking, you know, even in seventh grade, the, the reason we, we learned about like Nine Inch Nails and like um, Skinny Puppy was because we had, one of our friends had an older sister who she was, you know, 17 and she was the coolest girl ever and she was dating a guy who was like untouchable, you know. So there, I think those, those things are, are pretty, um, at least I, I'm not sure if it's the same nowadays, you know, because back then we couldn't, you know, there was no YouTube or whatever. Um, but for sure, like everyone, I, I do realize that like a lot of the people who taught me about like really, um, interesting music or art, they, they also had some older like siblings that were, that sort of, um, were, was a cool influence. Um, but really just surrounding yourself by other people who, who, are making, you know, if you go over to someone's house and you see them, like, building synthesizer um, and that interests you, then, you know, ask them if you, they want to start, like, a, a band or something. I mean, that's what you should do as, like, a, as, like, a fourth grader, you know. Just go for it. Yeah. Just start playing. Yes, exactly. Go Love for it. it. Yeah. Well, I've learned a lot about you <laughs> and your interesting past and also about electronic music. So thank you very much, Adrian. Cool. You're welcome.